NFL wildcard weekend did not disappoint this time around as four of the five games went down to the wire with another still to be played tonight. I'll recap the disasters that were the Chargers, the Dolphins, Ravens, and Vikings play calling, and is Daniel Jones elite? Is it time to start paying attention to the Seattle Kraken as they're the hottest team on the ice at the moment? The first leg of tennis's Grand Slam has commenced down under in Australia as I'll preview the Open. The middle of January may bring cold temperatures in most parts of the world, but yours truly will pack a lot of heat with plenty of fiery sports talk to set your earbuds or speakers ablaze. It's all coming up, but first, this message. J Reels here, just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, the J Reels Podcast. On wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there, whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review. I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What? is happening my good people greetings how are you how's it going how's everybody doing out there what is the latest and greatest i hope everybody's doing well feeling fantastic in excellent spirits on a day where we honor dr martin luther king and everything he did for civil rights in this country it's a privilege to deliver the latest episode that's going on in our little corner of the world when it comes to sports as this is the j reels podcast with your host j reels For my first-timers, welcome aboard, and for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. Before I begin, I must give a birthday shout-out to my one and only child, my son Andre, Larry Bird, Eddie Murray, Tony Dorsett, Scottie Pippen, among many others who wore the number 33, signifying your age today. May you enjoy it to the fullest with many, many more to come. I love you, kid. I know it's mid-morning, I haven't reached out to you just yet, but be sure that a text and a phone call will come your way later on to celebrate your 33rd year of existence on this planet, and one more time, many, many more for you to come. With that being said, the NFL is going to be the giant spotlight on this podcast, and it's obvious, considering we just came off of a wildcard weekend, which has not completed... We know we have one more game tonight between Dallas and Tampa. The winner of that matchup will go to San Francisco to play the Niners. And we can only hope, I will say this, I do not want to see another Buccaneer 49er rematch. We saw that, what was it, about a month or so ago, where the Niners just blasted Tampa out of the water. And I'd rather see Dallas in that spot because maybe Dallas will put up a better fight. 
And I'm sure there'll be a little bit of a revenge angle based on what happened last year in Dallas in the wild card game. But we'll get to that later on as I take a 30,000 foot view of the weekend. I talked about this on Thursday thinking that it was going to be a not so wild card weekend. And it was the exact opposite. To think that after the first game, the next four pretty much came down to the wire. Some questionable play calling. A quarterback that is really taking a big leap to where his running back said that he is elite right now. And I'm talking about Daniel Jones. Another Charger gut punch that we're going to have to dissect big time. And other questionable play calling, whether it's John Harbaugh there at the goal line where the Ravens are looking for the go-ahead score, or even Mike McDaniel who screwed up two instances in the game and actually had a good shot to maybe even tie the game late, but thanks to his ineptitude, that went up in smoke. So let's take it game by game in chronological order with the first one being Seattle and San Francisco. And to think this was a game that I thought was going to be a blowout. The Seahawks were in this game for two and a half quarters. They had a 17-16 lead actually in the third quarter. And when the Niners took the lead 23-17, you wondered if Seattle's going to have enough gas in the tank to keep this game close and to not only that, maybe even put a little pressure and maybe even a little fear into Brock Purdy, who had had a tremendous game overall, four touchdowns in his playoff debut. But the biggest part of the game, as we know, was the Seahawks driving deep in Niner territory, and then Geno Smith gets stripped, fumbles. Next thing you know, the Niners recover, and they go the other way with a touchdown. No, not on the fumble recovery, but they were able to, on the ensuing drive after the fumble, were able to get into the end zone to make it 23-17, and then to, excuse me, to make it 31-17. And then right after that, because the score was, of course, 23-17 at the time of the fumble, So with the Niners going the other way, they tack on the two-point conversion, and then they get the exclamation point there, Debo Samuel with the 78-yard touchdown, and you can pretty much turn your sets off there. As I mentioned, the legend of Brock Purdy continues. He's been flawless ever since he's been the starting quarterback, going back to that game against the Dolphins to where Jimmy Garoppolo was on the shelf for the rest of the year. And even if his foot does happen to heal miraculously over the course of the next two weeks, This is Brock Purdy's team, which is actually shocking to say. And the legend continues to grow, as I mentioned. He's been undefeated as a starter. The Niners, who looked like they were, I'm not going to say out of sync, but maybe they were kind of feeling their opponent. They know Seattle very well, obviously playing in the NFC West. But when the money was on the line, when it was time to make a big play, the vaunted Niner defense did so, and the offense then took over. Christian McCaffrey with a big game. Obviously, Purdy and his heroics and the Niners are waiting in the wings to see what happens tonight down in Tampa to see who their next opponent is going to be. And that's pretty much sums up your game number one. Saturday night, when we look at this Charger team, especially over the last 20 years, and it doesn't matter if the coach is Marty Schottenheimer, Anthony Lynn, North Turner, now in this case, Brandon Staley, This Charger team has had some inexplicable losses in the regular season, but even brutal, kick-to-the-groin, gut-punch-type losses to where you got to wonder whether or not this organization is snake bit. Think about this, and I'm just going the last 20 years. I'm not going to go back to the Freezer Bowl when they lost to the 
Cincinnati Bengals 59 below in the AFC Championship game or any of the other games, whether it's the Raiders or you name it, I'm not going to go there. Only in this century that I want to discuss these Charger playoff losses, but this one may rank above some of the ones I'm going to mention in the next second. 2004 in the wildcard game against the Jets. Nate Kading was a very good field goal kicker, and if I'm not mistaken, he actually could have been all pro that year. Not pro bowl, all pro. Misses a game-winning field goal in overtime, and then the Jets came down the field and kicked the game winner as they moved on to play Pittsburgh, if you remember, back in 2004. And that Charger team, who should have won that game and should have moved on the postseason, uh uh-uh, didn't happen, they lose. In 2006, when they were a one seed, I believe they were... 12-4, and the Patriots come into their building. And remember, the Patriots, this was the year before they had the epic season, the almost undefeated season. So when you have guys like Jabbar Gaffney and Rache Caldwell, the dearly departed, rest in peace, two guys that were wideouts on the team, and the Chargers had no business losing a game where they were up 21-13 with about four minutes to go after Marlon McCree... The defensive back intercepts Tom Brady there at about, I would say, the Charger 40-yard line. Troy Brown strips him of the ball. The Patriots recover. What happens then? They march down the field, punch it into the end zone, get the two-point conversion, and then win on a game-winning field goal. I believe it was at the buzzer. Out goes the Chargers in that game. Now let's go to 2009, where they were 14-2. and They played the Jets again. A Jet team that had won their previous game on the road in Indianapolis. And now here they are in San Diego. Excuse me, that wasn't even in Indianapolis because they played the following week in Indy for the AFC title game. The week before they beat the Bengals. So now here it is. A team that was 14-2, Phillip Rivers flying high. A lot of people thought that this was a team that could go to the Super Bowl. Another one seed, and what happens? They lose 17-14. But the worst part about it was Sean Green gets that touchdown, the long touchdown run where he mimics LaDainian Tomlinson once he gets into the end zone. And then even when the Chargers try to come back, and for whatever the reason, what do they do? An onside kick. Whether they had all three timeouts, they would have kicked the ball, they would have been a lot better if they'd done that because the Jets went for it on fourth and one, but in Charger territory. If it was fourth and one, In Jet territory, they would have punted the ball. The chances of the Chargers marching down the field to kick a field goal probably would have been high. Obviously, we'll never know. But another serious, just, ah, stench, stick to your ribs type of defeat that you just will never, ever seem to let go. And then, there was Saturday night. If you thought those three playoff losses prior to what I just explained there were bad, then this is the icing on the tombstone. To be up 27-0, and yes, four interceptions in the first half, three by Asante Samuel Jr., and even though the Jaguars did get a touchdown right before the half to make it 27-7, but I'm sure everybody's thinking there's no way Jacksonville's going to come back. And then, this is where the Chargers, for whatever the reason, those ghosts, they went from San Diego up the coast, and they decided to make a big right turn to Jacksonville because all of a sudden that field was just permeated by those old ghosts. And for whatever the reason, even with the game pretty much in hand at 30 to 20, 
Fourth quarter, nine minutes to go, when the field goal kicker Dicker misses, that's when you thought to yourself, as a Charger fan, do I really have to worry here? Is this a game that's just going to slip through our hands? Is this a game that we're going to have to put in the annals of those aforementioned games in 04, 06, and 09? I'm sure you probably thought about that. As they get the ball and go down the field to get the touchdown, and then you're thinking, at that point, once they scored that touchdown, and then you had the ridiculous penalty by Joey Bosa, who slammed his helmet to the turf, and... For the Jaguar coach, Doug Peterson, and we all know he's a riverboat gambler. And it makes you think that even without that penalty, which they took there, so they got the ball at the one-yard line and decided to go for two at that point, which was very gutsy. But of course, it doesn't go beyond or past Peterson, considering his track record, as we all know, the Philly Special being one of them, and famously known for. But for Lawrence to then just stretch his six foot six long right arm across the plane of the goal line to make it 30-28, to and you just knew at that point that the Chargers were going to shrink. And I think even with Bosa, if that penalty was going to be used on the kickoff, I think Peterson would have gone for two there anyway. That's just how he is. Now, the safest bet would have kicked the extra point, of course, but now you get a scenario where the Chargers, all they need is first downs. They need to move the chains, and what happens? Here's where the play calling goes awry. Why is Justin Herbert dropping back on first down when you need to run the ball to eat up the clock? And as it was, he gets sacked for a loss of seven yards. So now you're at second and 17. You got to play catch up. You're not going to run the ball at that point of the drive. So what does he do? He puts his team behind the eight ball to where he throws two short pass completions. They have to punt the ball. Obviously, that's not going to cut it. And therefore... You have a scenario where the Chargers are now on their heels. The Jaguars are now slowly but surely marching up the field. They have plenty of time. And then the key fourth in one where Travis Etienne, everybody thought that Trevor Lawrence was going to sneak the ball. That wasn't the case. A remarkable play call by Peterson as Etienne goes around right tackle to get a big chunk of yards, sets themselves up for Riley Patterson's game-winning field goal, And when it's all said and done, not only did the Chargers gag a 27-0 lead, not only did they miss a field goal there with nine minutes to go, which maybe would have put the game away, not only did Joey Bosa melt down there to give the Jaguars an even better attempt to get a two-point conversion, but on top of all of that, they give up the game-winning field goal and are the first team in NFL history to have not one, not two, not three, not four, but a 5 nothing turnover edge and lose the game. Can you make it up? The third biggest playoff comeback in NFL history, the 92 Bills, as we all know, down 35-3, and then the 2013 Colts, who were down 38-10, 28 points. And here is the third largest in NFL history, to where if you're Brandon Staley, I'm sure you're waiting for that call, that email from the Spanos family to say, you are done here, my guy. And as we've seen here with Staley, maybe a very good coordinator, but he is not by any means a big-time coach or even a good coach. And yes, he has made gutsy calls in his two years, going for it on fourth down a lot, especially when you have a gunslinger like 
Justin Herbert at quarterback. And he had a decent game. I mean, his stat line wasn't off the charts. They had a ton of turnovers, a lot of short fields. So those numbers may not be as gaudy. But for the Chargers to lose that game, to me, that was more of a collapse than it was the Jaguars coming back. And give it up for the Jaguars. They had to make plays in order to come back. As we know, Lawrence, the second quarterback in NFL history, and the second time it's happened in three years where Ben Roethlisberger threw four touchdowns and four interceptions in that brutal wildcard loss against the Browns. And here is Lawrence doing the same thing, but this time in a win. Pumps life into the Jaguars, Duval Conti, and Jacksonville, who escaped the jaws of defeat to come out victorious. Uh, I don't even know what else to say. And once again, if you're the Chargers, the coach has to go. Who knows if Sean Payton is going to be somewhere waiting in the wings, if that call is going to be made. We know the Spanos family, they're not the most, I won't go as far as saying generous, but they're not the type of organization that's just going to splurge on a coach, as we've seen here in recent years with the Anthony Lins of the world. And we'll just have to wait and see, but he is not the answer. And Justin Herbert needs a guy. And Sean Payton would be the perfect match, you would think. But the Chargers, just a, I don't even know how else to put it. It's brutal loss is an understatement. Uh, I, I got to move on because that one, I to wash that off, it's almost impossible to. As we get to yesterday's games, here's what I'll say about the Bills. Before I even get to the game overall, I think this team has a flick of the switch mentality where they play down to their opponent and they believe that they could turn it on when they absolutely have to. Especially when you have a team like Miami who they were just in that building, what was it, three weeks ago? And they played very well. I get it. Tua Tagovailoa was the quarterback then. And we all know that the Dolphins had a lead in the fourth quarter and had a chance to win the game. But the Bills came back, won the game as we know. But for Buffalo, they have these moments to where they really make you think whether or not that they are 100% focused. And I don't know, maybe they thought Skylar Thompson, who his numbers were awful, and did make some plays and had some bad drops by his receivers, Jalen Waddle in particular. Even Tyreek Hill had one bad drop there in the first half. But this isn't going to fly when you move on to play Cincinnati next week, or even if you get to a championship game in Atlanta, and I'll get to that later on, against Kansas City, if the chips fall where they may. And this is the one thing that's frustrating if you're a Bill fan because you don't know this Jekyll and Hyde type of, I don't want to say mentality because it's not a mental thing, but I think that the flick of the switch mentality is one that because they have a very talented quarterback and a talented offense that they could just turn on the Jets when they feel like it. And we saw that there in the third quarter, which I'll get to as well. But that's the one thing that I take away from this game. Because there's no way that the Dolphins should have been in this game when you're up 17-0. And yes, you shot yourselves in the foot on a couple of occasions. I get it. You had the long interception there. Xavier Howard, who then ran it back. They converted that to a field goal. The interception there where it was not the fault of Josh Allen, but it was bounced off of the receiver. And then returned back, which set up the third field goal at 17-9. No, wait, excuse me. The touchdown that led after the interception, which made it 17-17. And again, not the fault of Josh Allen, but knowing that the Dolphins then came all the way back from a 17-0 lead, although they tacked on the field goal to make it 20-17. But then, 
Third quarter, you get the fumble recovery, touchdown 24-20, where now the Dolphins had the lead, and you're scratching and clawing, you don't score on the next drive, and then this is where Mike McDaniel, I don't know why he was trying to get cute here, but this is where the game changed. Third and 19, where the goalposts are in the shadow of your quarterback, for whatever the reason, it's not the quarterback's fault, because we all know he's a third-string quarterback for a reason, but he tries to throw a deep out to the left side where it gets intercepted. Ball's now at the Miami 33-yard line. And then five plays later, down 24-20, they punch it into the end zone, make it 27-24. Then the Dolphins do nothing with their next drive. After that, they go ahead and tack on another touchdown where Gabriel Davis tiptoes in the back of the end zone in the corner to make it 34-24. And even though the Dolphins made it interesting, they didn't get a touchdown. And then which leads to the second thing, well, before I even get to that, why is Mike McDaniel drawing up a play call for 3rd and 19 to have Skylar Thompson throw a deep out? Seriously? That's where you had to run the ball, just punt, hopefully you get a good punt, and get your defense back out there to try to make a stop. The Bills were scuffling there a little bit. I'm sure that the building, probably you would have heard some tension and anxiety. Let's just say if the Bills got the ball and didn't do anything with it on that drive, but you gave all the life and all the oxygen to the team, to the fans, and in that building to where Beasley scores the touchdown to make it 27-24, and that's when the Bills set off and ended up winning. But then now, let's fast forward. At 34-31, 2.28 to go. You're near midfield. You had a play where you get stopped there on third and one, and it looked like he had gotten the first down, but then you could tell by the way the line judge was coming to get the ball that... He was short. In the post game, Mike McDaniel said that it was communicated to him that it was a first down, so he had his pairing or his group that went out into the field to set up a first and 10 down play. So it was a scenario where there was some chaos, a little confusion, but all Mike McDaniel had to do was look at the referee to see him signal first down or signal with his two arms up to say that they were short instead of listening to the guy in his headset, where I understand you're going to trust, and he didn't mention him by name, obviously he didn't want to throw him under the bus, but he said that it was communicated to him that it was a first down. So therefore, it was all that confusion, fourth and one, and what happens? Delay a game, fourth and one becomes fourth and six, and then the next thing you know, Skylar Thompson's trying to find Mike Gusecki incomplete, and that's your ball game. Why is he not looking at the referee in that point to see whether or not that they even marked it? On the spot to say, you're short there, Mr. McDaniel. What are you going to do? Or it's a first down, and now you can bring out your group to set up a whole new set of downs. And this is why these young coaches, and I'm going to get to Kevin O'Connell in a minute, I'm not going to say they're clueless, but you have to wonder who's working that sideline or who's getting in his ear to say these certain things and not focusing on what's happening on the field to say, did the referee mark it? At the spot where we think it's a first down, or did he call it a first down? Did we see the motion of the first down by the referee? Until you see that, it's fourth down. And the Dolphins had a good opportunity to move the ball there to see if they could set themselves up in field goal range or maybe even take the lead. Because they still had the two-minute warning. I forgot how many timeouts off the top of my head. But just a terrible job by McDaniel. Inexplicable play calling going back to Skylar Thompson at third and 19. And then here, just not getting his bearings and listening to people that, not to say he shouldn't be listening to, but keep your eyes on the field. Look at the ref. Ah, just terrible. 
And if you're Miami, we're going to see what's going to happen moving forward with them. Obviously with Tua, they did say he's going to come back. And all signs look like he's going to be the quarterback for next year. He has nine months to get himself right. Really eight months when you think about it because we're already into January. And that's a long way down the road. But if you're a Dolphin fan, you got to be sick knowing that you played well. And Thompson did make some plays. His stat line was awful. I mean, he was what, 18 for 41, whatever it was. But he kept his team in the game. And granted that the Bills also shot themselves in the foot with some terrible miscues. And this is why I talked about the Bills playing down to their opponent and feeling that they have that flick of the switch mentality. But they live to see another day and the Dolphins go home for the winner. Giants of Minnesota, the emergence of Daniel Jones. And I don't even know what to say here. Because here's a guy that I'm sure Giant fans as early as last year wanted him out of town. Why do we take the number six overall pick and a guy from Duke has no real pedigree in college. Yes, he does have ability with his legs. We saw him trip over the, what, 20-yard line, that game in Philadelphia on a Thursday night a few years back. And we never thought that it, and I'm not a Giant fan, but when I say we, as far as the NFL fan, never thought that this guy was going to be able to blossom or even flourish here in New York because his growth and his maturity wasn't coming into play here as a guy that could lead his team into the playoffs and maybe even go on a deep playoff run. As we saw there yesterday, and I get it, Saquon Barkley wants to call him elite. That's his teammate. He could do that. I'm not ready to call him that yet, but yesterday, he was most definitely that. Playmaking with his legs, obviously making big throws, taking the lead early, I understand you had Andrew Thomas a full start there at 7-7 on that touchdown to Isaiah Hodgkins. And that should have been a false start. I don't know why that hadn't been called. And you also saw another one play like that later on in the game. But be that as it may, 14-7, they were in control of the game. Vikings, they were able to move the ball, but they weren't able to do much in that middle part of the game. And when we take a look as we move ahead into the game where the Vikings had to come back from a 24-14 deficit. They get a touchdown that was much needed. And then to think, it was 4th and 1, deep in giant territory, where Kirk Cousins sneaks to get the first down. But it's whistled a false start. That was huge. Because then they had to settle for the field goal. They kicked the field goal to tie the game. They were about 12 and a half minutes to go. But if the Vikings were able to get that first down, and continue to move the chains and get into the end zone, the complexion of the game turns. Now, the Giants were able to move the ball in the Vikings all day, and they are far from the purple people leaders as we know. But now you get some pressure to where they're going to play from behind as opposed to in front, and that they need a touchdown and not a field goal to take the lead. Because remember, that would have been 28-24 if the Vikings would have marched on and continued, put it into the end zone, and now the Giants will have to then rally the troops and maybe take chances that they wouldn't normally take considering they were playing from ahead. But now the game is tied so they could be a little bit looser. They could pretty much stick to their game plan. Although that would have been the case even if at 28-24, I understand that. But now you have the crowd behind them. The Vikings have the lead. First lead since the opening drive of the first quarter. And again, it does change the complexion and what Daniel Jones would have done at that moment. Obviously, we'll never know. But it would have been a big question mark. As it is, 
Big plays down the field at 24 up, including a big catch by Isaiah Hodgkins on the sideline. And then Saquon Barkley sneaks into the end zone with about five and change to go. And the Giants then take the lead, 31-24. And then let's get to it with the play calling. I know I'm going to fast forward here a little bit as we get late in the game. But when a third and eight midfield, and of course the Vikings need a touchdown. As Cousins throws in the middle of the field to where K.J. Osborne looked like he could have caught the ball. Great defense there by the secondary, but for now it being fourth and eight, you know they're going to have to take another shot like that. I don't know what Kevin O'Connell, I don't know if that's a check down where Hawkinson is there in the flat, but to throw a three-yard out on fourth and eight where he was blanketed by Xavier McKinney, please, that is as bad as it gets. And you got to have a better sense to know that you're going to have to throw the ball downfield. Maybe you get a flag. Maybe you get a defensive holding, a pass interference. That play in the flat was just an awful play call. If that was the call that was going into the headset of Kirk Cousins. And now a Viking team, 13-4. and They were 11-0 in one-score games this year. And the one game that they lose is in the postseason. And that's another team that's had some brutal playoff losses over the years. And I'm not going to go through their history because not only do we know, but the Charger one was epic because of the 27-0 lead. But Minnesota, I hate to say it, they were a soft 13-4 when you think about it. And I get it, they won in Buffalo and they had to come back against the Colts and they did win some big games throughout the course of the year. More so early on, but they did lose in Philly. They got blasted at home by Dallas. They got just raked over the coals in Green Bay late in the year, and they did lose in Detroit. And if you're a Viking fan, to my guy, Kev, who I know has been silent on Facebook, I got to shout him out. I know he was chirping a lot, and that's why I don't chirp when it comes to that stuff. It's either win the whole dance, and then you can talk all you want, or just stay quiet until, if and when that does occur. And also to my guy, Headstyle in Minnesota, who has seen this movie before, read the book, etc. Another... Tough playoff loss. Um, what more can you say? And if you're a Viking fan, that's not going to sit well with you knowing that you were a two seed the whole year, then became a three seed there in week 17, and then 13 and four, which is, I don't care who you beat. You're still in the NFL and all these close victories and you wait till the postseason to lose a one score game. Brutal. And that play call, that is one that's going to haunt the Vikings all winter long. If, I, if I'm if i a fan of any of these teams, uh, how could I sleep? Whether you're Dolphin fan, obviously Chargers, and now I'll even get to the Ravens because the Ravens played well. They were gritty behind their quarterback, Tyler Huntley, who we didn't find out until the day before that he was going to start. Under center for the Ravens. We know Lamar Jackson is out with the knee, and I'll get to him later on. And for the Bengals, it was a typical AFC North battle. Tooth and nail. A lot going on with both teams, especially with the Ravens because they had to play catch-up. And actually, they had an opportunity there in the biggest play of the game. And this play call I hated as well. At the two-yard line, 17 up. And like I said, the game has been nip-tuck 
tooth and nail, hard fought. I understand you're not going to win a Super Bowl with Tyler Huntley, but as gutty as he was, and I understand it's not all his fault, but what we saw the night before in Jacksonville, granted it was at the one-foot line, or really at the one-yard line, for Lawrence to be 6'6", and with his reach to just extend his arm to break the plane of the goal, why was Tyler Huntley doing that at 6'1", and not as vertically, and I'm sure the reach is not the same as the one Trevor Lawrence, for him to try to, over the top, get that ball across the goal line for it to be swatted away into the arms of Sam Hubbard who goes 98 yards the other way to get the game-deciding touchdown there is beyond me. Why did it even think that? And then you hear J.K. Dobbins in the postgame saying that I should have been the guy to carry the ball. And why not? It was third and goal. I could see it was at the one-inch line or even at the one-yard line. It was at the two. What is he, Walter Payton all of a sudden? Just an... Terrible. Greg Roman, who did what he could with what he had, but that was just, ah, what what were you doing? What were you thinking there? And to me, that's one of the themes of the weekend. Granted that you had some thrilling games, exciting finishes, comebacks that we've rarely seen, but these play calls by some of these coordinators and coaches, it just made you pull your hair out of your head. Whether you're Brandon Staley, Mike McDaniel, Kevin O'Connell, and even John Harbaugh, who's been around the block several times. You could have said to Greg Roman, no, let's just give it to Dobbins. Or if it's going to be Huntley, let's have him roll out instead. What are we doing having him going over the top where he was nowhere near the goal line, and then it goes the other way? Now, of course, you're not thinking it's going to go the other way, but you're exposing yourself to a guy who is 6'1". He's not built like Trevor Lawrence or Dante Culpepper or Cam Newton. Ah. And listen, I have no love for the Ravens. I'm glad they lost. Good riddance, goodbye. I can't stand them. But again, if you're a Raven fan, you're going to be thinking about this whole winter, wondering, could we have drawn up another play there that would have been a high percentage play? And this is a run-oriented team. Oh, it just makes you shake your head. Brutal. And even with that, it came down to the final play of the game where Tyler Huntley was being pressured and he's dropping back and he's continuing to fall back and he launches one into the end zone where it was almost caught by James Prochet and he actually could have caught it maybe even should have caught the ball I get it that there's arms and maybe didn't look like it was deflected so there's a lot going on there and to really concentrate to try to haul that pass in would have been extraordinary but the Ravens were that close to tying the game even with all that being said and the Bengals escape I'm not going to say they were bad. They were good enough. Let's just call it like we see it. You know, Burrow played good, but he was under siege at times throughout the course of the night. As you saw, I believe he was sacked, what, four or five times? Yes, they did get some big plays there. T. Higgins with some big catches. Obviously, Jamar Chase. But the Bengals certainly didn't outlast Baltimore the way they did the week before. And I get it, Anthony Brown was the quarterback. And now the Bengals have an epic matchup against Buffalo, which we'll get to. But I tell you, that game yesterday in Cincinnati was reminiscent of the game last year in a wild card round against the Las Vegas Raiders. Tooth and nail, nip and tuck, like I said, but down to the wire. Jermaine Pratt, who almost got the interception there at the end from Huntley, got the interception against Derek Carr last year, if you remember, right there at the goal line. So it was nail-biting to the end. 
one score game and you prevailed. And if you're a Jai in Baltimore, my guy, or Risa down in Tampa, or Brian Murray in Jersey City, you just exhale and now it's off to Buffalo. And if you're the Ravens, the only thing I could say here is Lamar Jackson and his health. We know about the contract. The Ravens, I'm sure they're going to franchise him unless there's an impasse or something that goes awry here because we know how critical he is to that offense. But I will say this. They do have to change their offense just a slight bit. It can't be run-oriented or run-dominated. And we understand it works for them. And as it was, Jackson hurt himself on a play where he was dropping back to pass and trying to escape the pocket to where he was tackled to the ground, if you remember that game against Denver. And that's how he hurt his knee, and we didn't see him the rest of the year. You look back to last year, he didn't play the last four or five games because of an ankle injury, and now a carbon copy a year later. You got to wonder whether or not that Lamar is he's going to get his money, and he's going to be franchised at least for this year. But who knows? I think he's coming back. But at the same time, if he does come back, John Harbaugh and company, they're going to have to not revamp the offense, but they're going to have to tailor it to where it's a little bit more pass-friendly. I'll just keep it at that. And not just to Mark Andrews, who is the security blanket of security blankets. We understand that. And you can bring in whatever wide receiver there on the team, but for whatever reason, he's mostly used as a decoy. And I get it, Rashad Bateman was out for the year with a foot injury, and they don't have a lot of great receivers on the team. We understand that, but they just cannot be as run-dominant as they, they have been over the years because the wear and tear is already starting on Lamar Jackson. And one more time, he is 6'2". He is literally a stealth fighter jet when it comes to speed. But he's not built like one. And that's what it boils down to when we got Lamar and Baltimore and how they're going to have to reshuffle the deck and think about it this offseason as they have to sit on that for the next eight months. And then tonight, I did pick Dallas to win if you listen to the podcast on Thursday. I think it'll be a better matchup for them to go to San Francisco, as I mentioned at the top. Rematch of last year. Dallas maybe with a little gas in their tank, depending on how they play tonight. Could I see them lose? Absolutely. But as I said on Thursday, I'll say one last time, Tampa has been playing uphill all year long, and I could see that being the case here. This isn't the Buffalo Bills flicker your switch mentality because they do not have that type of team, and Arians is not on the sidelines there where Todd Bowles, he's going to play more close to the vest. He's going to be more conservative. He's not going to take chances the way Arians did. So this is why I see Dallas winning tonight. But would I be shocked if Tampa wins? Absolutely not. But I don't want to see another 35-7 game as we saw a few weeks ago there at Levi Stadium when Tampa visited, what was it, late November into December. That I do not want to see. Now, a couple of things on the football front that I want to bring up. One, the AFC title game. This was late last week where they have announced that if it happens to be Buffalo and Kansas City, The game is going to be played in Atlanta. I can't stand it. It is awful. It is terrible. Why? I do not know. They should have played this game either in Cleveland, Pittsburgh, or dare I even say Chicago or Green Bay. Why not? And the, 
Well, one of the reasons was that it was the same amount of distance traveling from Buffalo to Georgia as it would be from Kansas City to Georgia. Mind you that it is a time zone away. Why have it in a dome? We want the elements. We want to see some snow. We want to see some cold air. We want to see maybe even some rain, muck, dirt. Doesn't matter. That's what the NFL is all about. It's not about playing in pristine conditions. A fast track, controlled environment. What the hell is that about? Now, if the team plays in that type of building and you have to go into a dome, of course, you have to play the game there. Nobody's going to argue that. But to have this game indoors and it's going to be antiseptic, who knows what's going to happen? What kind of fans are going to be in the building? Is it going to be mostly people from the Atlanta area? Are they going to give tickets to the longtime season ticket holders for both Kansas City and Buffalo, which I think would happen, but are they going to travel down there? It's just a mess. Why did the NFL do this to begin with is beyond me. Have the game at a cold weather site that's in the Midwest or in that AFC North. You want to even play the game in Baltimore? Play it in Baltimore. I don't have a problem with that. But I would think Cleveland, I understand you're not going to put it in Cincinnati, especially if you're Buffalo because of what happened there on Monday night a few weeks back. That's fine. Pittsburgh or even Chicago, Green Bay, that would have been perfectly fine with me. But of course, the NFL, they're going to do whatever they want and they're going to puff their chest out and say, who's going to stop us? And you're right. Nobody's going to say who's going to stop us. But as fans and doing a talk show, we have a right to voice our opinion and that's a bad one. And I'm sure I'm in the big majority when it comes to that. So that's number one. And the second thing is Sean McVay staying in LA and good for him. Because there are some people that think that he had been there for six years. They won a Super Bowl last year. Took him to two Super Bowls. If he wanted to take time off, he has every right to do so. All right, fine. But then there's the flip side of that where the team is now bottoming out because they sold their souls to winning that Super Bowl. And they did. You got to give them credit. But with them being in cap hell and no reinforcements in sight. And I'm sure there's going to be some lean years here. Maybe not 5-12 and 12 as it was this year. Maybe they'll have some better years along the way. Maybe 9-8, and eight, maybe a 10-7. and seven. Chances are they're not going to be at the top of the conference, but be that as it may, he is going to stick it out. And I got to give him credit for that because it's easy to jump ship and maybe take a year off or go to network TV to be an analyst, which a lot of people would have probably shunned, yours truly included, but he is going to stick around at least for one more year, which is good. I like to see that. Because it shows that he's all about the team. And yes, I get it. There's going to be some people. He deserves a blow. Why not? But me, I'm glad he's going to stick around. So McVay, at least for one more year, will be coach of the LA Rams in 2023. And lastly, with the division round just about set. And I'll touch more on this on Thursday as I'll go into some storylines, preview the games, etc., Of course, I can't preview what's going to happen in San Francisco because we still have to wait for the winner tonight between the Cowboys and Buccaneers, as I've stated earlier. But as we take a look at both windows Saturday and Sunday of next week, 4.30 on Saturday, Jacksonville in Kansas City, a rematch of a game earlier this year where Kansas City won. The nightcap Giants of Philadelphia as they renew their rivalry. They just played, if you recall, two weeks ago now, or two weeks from the time that they'll play this coming Saturday, but they did play in the regular season finale. Two teams that know each other very well. 
Interesting as the Giants will drive down the turnpike to play the Eagles and a lot is expected from the Eagles based on what they did throughout the regular season. Sunday, the first game being Cincinnati at Buffalo, which there's going to be a lot talked about. The prior matchup that should have taken place on Monday night, we know what happened with DeMar Hamlin, a game that should have been remade and played, even if it was in a neutral site, just to set up the whole AFC, as we know, and as I discussed with the whole Buffalo-Kansas City scenario, if they do play one another in the conference championship and where that's going to be held, but that's going to be a ferocious game. And then, of course, Tampa-Dallas, the winner of that game will play San Francisco. Well, off the top of my head, the most intriguing game by far is Cincinnati-Buffalo. And not because of what should have taken place there a couple of Monday nights ago, but these are two teams that are primed for Super Bowl runs. Buffalo has the game in their building, and I get it that the Bengal fan, they're going to be miffed that they lose this game because they're going to think, because of that Monday night game and not being able to complete it, that they should have had this game in their building if they would have won because with the head-to-head matchup, the Bengals would have had the home field advantage. We're going to have to wait and see. We understand that that's hindsight, but for fans like myself who felt that they should have played the game and now that they're not with Cincinnati having to travel to Buffalo to play this game, we will see how this all shakes down and to me, the most fascinating game of the weekend. That's not to knock Jacksonville, Kansas City, New York and Philly or even the game in San Francisco, but... I think that is the sexiest, the bar none, the best of the four matchups come Sunday. And obviously, we will touch on all of it come Thursday on the next podcast. All right, so now let me pivot as I go from there to the ice. And we know that this is going to be football dominant. But there are a few things I want to touch on before we bid adieu. The first thing being is the Seattle Kraken. And I've been talking about them over the last few weeks. And now we may have to really pay attention to this team and whether or not we should take them seriously because they did something that no other team in the history of the sport, and we can go back to all the teams, whether it's the early days of the Maple Leafs, Red Wings, the cherished Montreal Canadiens, the New York Islanders of the 80s, the Edmonton Oilers, the Pittsburgh Penguins, go through all the teams in league history. There has not been one team until just the other night in Chicago where the Seattle Kraken were on a seven-game road trip and they went 7-0 throughout. Can you believe that? Now, there are teams that have won and have had long winning streaks on the road. But, of course, a lot of the road trips are broken up. Two-game road trips, three-game road trips, five. But no one has ever won a seven-game road trip. Seattle did just that. And a team that is under a lot of people's radar because they play in the Pacific Northwest. It's their second year in existence in the NHL. And maybe the novelty has worn off with the NHL fan or the dying will NHL fan has paid attention to what's going on with the Kraken. And whether or not we should take them seriously, I guess there's a lot of people that still have to believe it when they see it. They're going to have to believe it right now considering what they've done here. And not even just over the last couple of weeks with this road stretch, but also just overall. And here and there, I have mentioned about them, and not that I've gone crazy, but wow, look at the Kraken, considering that they were typical expansion team last year, did not play well, did not have the same success that the Vegas Golden Knights did four years prior when they came into the league and went to the Stanley Cup Finals. But Seattle, speaking of which, of course, they're battling Vegas out west. They have two games in hand with the Golden Knights, 
who are currently two games behind Vegas for first place out in the Pacific. 26-12-4. They have won eight straight. Again, seven of them on the road. And now they'll have Tampa coming into their building for a matinee here on Martin Luther King Day. So for someone who wants to watch anything that has to do with some sports that's outside of the NFL, maybe that's something we could take a look at to see how the Kraken are going to do against the defending Eastern Conference champs and, of course, two-time cup champ before that in the Tampa Bay Lightning. In Seattle, we know they have a coach that if you tried to pick him out of a lineup, you couldn't. Same here, yours truly, with a guy like David Haxtall. But when we take a look at their team, their number two pick overall of their first year of existence and a one, Matty Beneers, their top leading scorer along with Andre Burakovsky, both tied with 36 points. Former Islander Jordan Everly is second in points. How about that? He was a guy that had his moments with the Islanders but was never second or close to the top in scoring as far as the team goes. And he's played very well this year. And this is with their first round pick that was sent down. If you remember a few weeks back in a one Shane Wright and with this mix, coach, players, even the goaltenders, when we look at them, Martin Jones has led the way in net with Philippe Grubauer, the backup, the former Colorado Avalanche netminder. Jared McCann leads in goals with 22 and Seattle has been a big surprise there out West and in the Pacific as they're just two points behind the Vegas Golden Knights in first place. Maybe I need to wait until we get into March and April if they can sustain. Now, of course, they're not going to continue to streak the way they have been, but they've been very consistent this year. They're at an all-time high as far as points, and I even picked them as an under this year, so that goes to show you how off I'm going to be. I think they were 81.5, and last year they had 60 points total. I thought they would probably fall just under that, And you would think with the clip that they're going, they're going to just blow right past that and, of course, obliterate my over-under point totals for this year. But give it up. Kraken have been more than what anybody's ever imagined and expected. And let's hope that they keep it up because we would like to see them compete, especially in that region of the country where there is a rabid fan base. We know about the soccer team, which has been just otherworldly, and that's if you follow the MLS When the Supersonics were there, we all know they're now in Oklahoma City, but they're dying to get a basketball team there back with the success of the Mariners this past year, making it into the postseason for the first time in forever. And then, of course, with the Seahawks, even coming off of a loss, but them having a very good season that led to a playoff berth. So let's see what the Kraken will do here. As far as the rest of the sport, I know I owe you guys a big-time apology. Usually the NHL All-Star game is in the third Saturday of the month, which would have been this coming Saturday, the 21st. I was off. I was wrong. The All-Star Game, and it makes a 1,000% sense, is taking place on February the 4th, which is the weekend between the conference championships of the NFL and the Super Bowl. Obviously, if they put it up against the football, it's going to get annihilated. There's no way that they'll draw any rating unless you're just a dine-wall hockey fan or you live in Canada, of course. But... Knowing that the All-Star Game, which is going to take place in South Florida and Sunrise, where the Panthers play, that you'll get a chance to see the NHL greats on the ice at that time, where you'll have the skills competition, of course, and it's going to take place that Saturday. I believe they're going to have Saturday night all to themselves, which is perfectly fine. And I owe you guys a big-time apology, because for the last couple of weeks, I'm thinking that the All-Star Game was going to be played this coming Saturday. So, hand raised high in the air, mea culpa, my bad on that. And then there's some sad news 
coming out. And this is for the fight fan like myself who follows the enforcers, especially at a time when it was all about the rugged, rough style of the game. Former Vancouver Canuck, and he also bounced around. He played for the Canadians, even the Islanders as well, Philadelphia. Gino Ojik, I always call him Ojik, but Gino Ojik, who was a tough player in his own right, he had to battle this rare disease going back to 2014. I can't even pronounce it. You know me with the enunciations and pronunciations of these words, especially when it comes to medical terms. But he had this condition called amyloidosis. I guess that's how you pronounce it. And for him to yesterday succumb to that, died of a heart attack, age of 52. And again, this has been going on for almost a decade to where this condition attacks his organs and the heart. Now, I'll spell it A-M-Y-L-O-I-D-O-S-I-S. So if you want to look it up, please feel free. But he had suffered this going back to 2014 and everybody knew that his condition was worsening. Sadly, it culminated in a heart attack yesterday where he leaves behind eight kids. His sister reported it on his Facebook page. 52 years old, way too young. And he was a tough guy back in the late 80s, early 90s that was part of the new breed of enforcer. Because when you think about the 80s, you think about the early on in the 80s, you think of the Ben Wilsons, you think of the Dave Semenko's, the Tiger Williams, you think of fighters like that. And then as you get into the middle part of the 80s to the latter part, the Bob Probers, the Dave Browns, the Joey Kosers, the Jay Millers, fighters like that. And then when you get to the latter part of the decade into the 90s, it was the Tony Twists, the Rudy Poshecks, the Darren Kimballs, the Gino Ojics, the Chris Simons, guys like that. And Ojic was a big part of that. He played on that 94 Vancouver Canuck team or was on that squad that lost to the Rangers in the Stanley Cup final and bounced around, had a long NHL career. Tough guy, good fighter, always willing. To me, he wasn't a great fighter. He wasn't a guy that was one of the top fighters, maybe top five or six, but he wasn't one of the top two or three, but he was willing. He always backed up his teammates. He was a guy that no matter what, was always there to defend his teammates. Dies at the age of 52. Just a terrible story. Thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to the Ojik family, his friends, the NHL community, etc. On just a terrible passing. What more can I tell you? And as far as anything else that's happening on the ice, that's pretty much it. I'll touch on more of that come Thursday. As I turn to the NBA, not much really to get into there. I know the Spurs had played a game in the Alamo Dome to where they drew the biggest crowd in NBA history as part of their 50th anniversary in the sport. And for 68,323 participants, which beat the old record of 62046 in the old Georgia Dome, that's in the 98 season with the 98 Chicago Bulls coming to town in Atlanta against the Hawks. So that blew it away by more than 5,000 more participants who showed up there, what, 25 years ago to have the Spurs get blown out by the Golden State Warriors in that building. And remember, they did play in the Alamo Dome back after the Hemisphere Arena, which they played in prior. And then they moved to the Alamo Dome where they didn't use the whole dome. They just sectioned it off to use part of it. And then from there, they moved to the AT&T Center, I believe in 03, 04, or maybe even before that, somewhere around that time. 
and they decided to bring it back one more time to celebrate their 50th anniversary and why not have it there where you have the defending champs come into the building, sell out the place, you get all of San Antonio to jam the place and watch your team get blown up by what I think it was 144 to 113 or something like that. So that was the main storyline here over the last few days. John Wall's going to be out a couple of weeks with an ab injury. So the beat goes on with the Clippers as they try to find their footing in this season. And then last night, if you're a Laker fan, I know you got sick watching Russell Westbrook dribble out the clock, not passing the ball or trying to pass it with two seconds left as they lose to the Sixers at home. And the Lakers now, as they try to inch forward closer to 500, they always take two steps forward and then five steps back. And last night was indicative of Westbrook trying to make a play, trying to dribble out the clock, and he had Embiid in front of him. So you know he was trying to do what he can to get past them around him, but we knew how that was going to turn out. And as it was, he turned the ball over and the game was over. So that's what you have there with the NBA as I will reconnect with the association come Thursday. And then lastly, the Australian Open has commenced down under where you already have some players move on. Rafael Nadal won in his first round match. On the women's side, you had Coco Goff. Iga Swiatek, so you already had a day and a half, almost two days in, considering that they're 12 hours ahead of us, and almost two days have been played here in the first Grand Slam of the year, but sadly, you do not have Carlos Alcaraz, who was out with a right leg injury, you don't have Nick Kyrgios, the native son of Australia, who had to depart with a knee injury, so you're not going to see him try to springboard his 2023 year based on what he did toward the end, especially at Wimbledon, making it to a final and then playing well in the latter half to see if he could try to get his first Grand Slam title in his career. So you're not going to see him. There's no Simona Halep. There's no Venus Williams. So now you have to piecemeal it together. No Naomi Osaka as we found out that she's pregnant and is not going to play throughout the 2023 calendar. So as we try to pick up the pieces here and see what we have left, we'll start with the men's side. You have Rafael Nadal, who's ranked number one in the world because of Alcaraz's exit. And Novak Djokovic, remember him? They're on opposite sides of the draw, so they could potentially meet up in a Grand Slam or an Australian final, which we would hope. So let's see whether or not the Daniil Medvedevs or the Andre Rublevs of the world could upset that apple cart. Stefano Tsitsipas won his first round matchup. And... Djokovic, who I know is chomping at the bit to get back on that court. As we all know, he couldn't play in the Open last year because of the whole vaccination process and he had to get shipped back to Serbia, I would think at that point. And not really being a part of the Grand Slams last year other than the French Open, as we saw. And then him not playing in the U.S. Open later on that year. So we would think that Djokovic is going to have a deep run here. Who knows if he has to shake off a little bit of rust, how he's kept himself in shape. We always know that he does keep himself in tip-top shape. But I would think, at the end of the day, if I had to predict, it's going to be Novak Djokovic. Because that fire that's been burning and sitting there for about a year, knowing that he's a couple of, or really one behind, Rafael Nadal as far as all-time Grand Slam matches and victories, We know that he's the king of this court here, down under. He's won, I believe, eight or nine Australian Opens. So I'm going to bank on him to win. Although I'll root for Nadal, but I think Djokovic is going to be 
just a tall order as he's going to be a menace for the next two weeks and I think he's going to win this Australian Open. As for the women's side, you have your favorites. I think Swiatek is going to be the one who's the number one player of the year. You have Jessica Pagula who won her first round match. We talked about Coco Goff, even Madison Keys, who also won. Arena Sabalenka is another woman to watch there on that side. I think Swiatek is going to win, but I think when it's all said and done, I'm going to root for Anshabur. The reason why is because she had been runner-up in both Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, losing to both Elena Rybakina and Swiatek. And I'm sure she wants to get her year off to a good start, and Swiatek is going to be a... Tough match if it does happen to be them in the final. But I think Shabur losing those two final matches in those final Grand Slams of last year to bring that into this year, I think it's going to propel her and carry her to win her first major title. Now, I would think, listen, if it was me betting the ranch, do I think Switek is going to win? It's tough not to bet against her because she has been hot over the course of the last calendar year. But I'm going to pick Jabor. I'm not going to go chalk or just take the obvious. I'm going to think of the experience that she had last year in those final two Grand Slam tournaments and parlay that to a Grand Slam title this time around. So we'll keep an eye on that as the first Grand Slam is now here. We'll keep an eye on that, of course, come Thursday into next week and we'll see where the chips will fall which would be two weeks from today on who will win the first slam of 2023. That'll do it, my good people. Another episode just about in the books. As always, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for taking a chance to listen to your boy babble and spew about my thoughts, feelings, opinions on everything that's happening in the world of sports. Your participation is never taken for granted. If you haven't done so, like I said at the top, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcast. Throw me a few stars, write a review. I greatly appreciate it. If you want to hit me up, you could do so with the following on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook, the J Reels Podcast. Twitter, J Reels One, just a number. In the old fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Whatever questions, comments, suggestions you might have, please hit me up. I'll be more than happy to follow back. And lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy. Whatever you want to put forth goes 100% to this endeavor, goes to the production of this podcast, the upkeep of the website, the equipment to make this experience into your earbuds or speakers that much more pleasurable with the fire, passion, fury, energy that I bring week in, week out. Whether you've been paying attention or not, because this is what I love to do, people. This is what I love to talk about. Sports is my life. It's in the blood. It's in the DNA, as I like to say, to discuss anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Center to South Pacific and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>